So this is how this is how it's going to work, Andrew. I've got three sets of three slides. Starting off really simple here. The question I want to ask you is, where does the beat fall? Keeping it really simple, okay. we're going to do all. Each slide will be one measure, and each of those three sets of three are going to use the same four quarter note melody line melody notes. We're just going to change which embellishments we have on these melody notes. Yeah. So here, our example is like, where does the beat fall? That's pretty obvious. There's one, two, three, and four. Sound good? Is it obvious? Is it obvious? Now that's the question. That's the question, isn't it? Yeah. So, so the, why did the, you draw the, why did you draw the line in the middle of the circle? instead of on the far left side of the circle. This might come into play as we move along. If you now actually if you'd like me to put it on the far left side of yeah, I think this, you thought this, this is why it's I, already a good point. I think you, you thought this was gonna be a simple episode and it's I think you're in for a rude awakening. My friend. Let's complicate no, it, baby. Uh, well, so you have four quarter notes there and fine, all four quarter notes could go on the beat, but what does that even mean, man? What does that even what mean? What does that mean? <laughs> what is a quarter note, man? What is it? And depending on what instrument you play, the quarter note could mean something like quite different. And where's the for example, coming from? For example, if I was like a tenor drummer, although it wouldn't be notated quite this way, but if I was a percussionist of some kind, th those quarter notes would be very strange. Mm -hmm. They would represent when I strike the surface. And really yeah. what you're talking about, so really what you're talking about with a quarter note and its relationship to the beat is when is that note initiated? Yes, when is it initiated? Yeah. And then the bagpipe is a note that initiates only and does not de-initiate. And there's, a, there's like real terms for this. If you were using a MIDI sequencer or something, it would be known as like the release. So how long before that note is released and you're not playing that note anymore? But see, on the bagpipes, we don't have a release because the sound is continuous. So we have a release free. So when we see rhythms, all we are particularly concerned about, typically, when we see music notated on the page, is we're most concerned about when does that sound initiate. Mm -hmm. But hopefully you can appreciate for other instruments, there's more to it than that. How long, yeah. is the, how long is the actual duration of that note before there's any break? Going back to what I said before, Bruce Ganny sometimes says the bagpipe is a legato instrument. Hmm. But, so a trumpet could play legato as well, but that would be like not something you would do all the time. I'm not an expert in this regard, but a legato would mean that you connect all the notes and you slur between them and there's no stop in between. And then, right. you have, and then you have a violin. Are you bowing that note or are you plucking that note? And if you're plucking the note, you'd want to pluck the note exactly at the moment of the beat. But then the question, right, yeah. <clears throat> then I also have a question like, what is the beat? Right? So we have four quarter notes here that all have to be played on the beat. But what does that mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jim's like, I don't know. Okay. So like, you know, because uh, you hear people say all sorts of crazy stuff all the time, which is, oh yeah, man. Like, John Bonham, he played on the back of the beat. You know? Yeah. Yep. So like, what pocket. is this beat? You is the beat the like a, 
Is the beat like the convenience store where you could do you could do legal transactions in the front and then like slightly shadier <laughs> transactions in the back? Is that what the beat is? Like is it that. like a is it like a structure? I yeah. yeah, I think that's actually exactly what know. the beat is. I like that a lot. It would certainly make life more interesting if the beat was like a store or a shop or yeah, some yeah. kind. Let's make it a speakeasy. You have to know the password to get in to get so, into the beat. Yeah, so I think that it's really helpful to specifically define these things, right? Mm -hmm. So let's start with what the beat would be. And the beat is going to be a regularly recurring pulse in the music, regularly mechanically reoccurring. That's what the beat is. Now, you could always change that, right? Let's say that's the rule. The beat is this thing that always happens on a perfectly regular interval. You can change that if you want. But as far as defining what the beat is, perfectly regular intervals. That's the first thing. And then each beat should be represented by an infinitely small moment in time. That's a very important thing to define if we're going to now talk about how different rhythms and embellishments and stuff are going to work for pipers. Because if the beat is something that you could be on the front of or on the back of at will, then you have a pretty hazy definition and it's going to be pretty difficult to objectively figure out whether or not you have succeeded in manifesting your your intentions out into the real world yeah right then looking at these four quarter notes if i were tapping my foot along with a metronome say tapping mm -hmm. out four four beats let's take these slashes that i put right in the middle of the notes let's undo yeah, let's those. Get rid of those those are bothering and let's me. instead let's those instead go me. will my foot tap yeah right there and right there does that look about right yeah so that's not where your foot is going to tap all right that's where you're going to initiate the note. Yes. Mm -hmm. You're going to in initiate the note in accordance with your foot that's tapping. Or if you have a metronome going, you're going to initiate mm -hmm. the note perfectly synchronously to that. So I think of it as an external input of some kind. Because you could also be playing, it a, you could also be playing in a band. And depending on the band and what their sort of religion is pertaining to who gives the definitive beat in the band. Is it the pipe major? Is it the bass drummer? Is it the leading snare drummer what's that going to be not quite sure each band might be different but your quarter note in this case if this was the tune we were all playing together the quarter note would initiate exactly at that infinitely small moment that is mm -hmm. the beat yeah for starters so that right there is right where we drop from the initial e that's right where the a becomes a c that's right and then that's and that's the other thing too what does that mean to play the c exactly on the beat I personally think it's worth thinking this through. Mm -hmm. So when we go from an A to a C, check out my new small Gibson practice channel here. Hey, uh, you've been listening to Dr. Matthew Welch, huh? Could be. But when we go from A to C, what does that mean? That means these two fingers are going to lift, that finger's going to drop. Those fingers lift and that finger drops, right? That is the action. That is the transition from one note to another. Those actions happen at exactly that infinitely small moment in time that is the beat. Like that's mm -hmm. specifically what we're talking about there. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if that doesn't happen, we're gonna have problems. As a matter of fact, I think most crossing noises are a result of not being specific enough about exactly when those fingers are supposed to move. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Now, yeah, and the, you also gave us a really- the rabbit hole goes deep, my friend. <laughs> and it twists and turns all along. You no. gave a really good sort of intro to a caveat that I think does matter to mention here. If, for example, I go from one band 
the pipe major in that band might have a, a foot movement if I can use my hand to represent my, a foot where mm-hmm. their toe is meeting the ground and then their heel follows after. And it might be up to me to ask the pipe major directly or figure out, is this pipe major's preference that their toe making contact is where the beat falls? Or do I have a pipe yeah. major who's stomping on the heel? Or do they sometimes shift to change their weight throughout a, a tune? Like, uh, yeah. it behooves me to do what the, to follow what, the way that the pipe major is going to indicate the beat. Because mm-hmm. that can change from band to band. And ultimately, the answer as to how to do that, I dare say, is... Whatever your band does, don't make waves. Don't go in there and be like, well, Andrew Douglas said you should do it this other way. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, great, it's a great thought experiment. I actually don't think it's as big a problem as people make it out to be. Instead of debating how the pipe major should tap his foot, we could go practice our technique or tuning or something. Mm-hmm. But, but however, I see what you're saying. And now that we have a clear definition of what the beat is, that points us in the direction of what the real problem with the foot can be. So we Mm -hmm. need the beat. The beat is an infinitely small moment in time. And that's like, like, can anything be an infinitely small moment in time? I'm not sure. We'd need a physicist to, you know, to consult with here. But like, it's it's a radically, insanely, imperceptibly small moment in time. And so is it even possible to hit, to tap your foot on the ground in such a way? If you uh, slow and, down the camera enough, that tap is no longer very short. It can right. be like... Exactly. It's so. not infinitely small. And then, it, and, it, and then to your point, if the foot goes from heel to toe or vice versa or something like that, that would extend the length of time. Now, so now it's something that we need to be extremely infinitely precise is now totally imprecise. And that makes, that, that makes a bit of a problem. Here's my tip on that. I'm never going to go up and by never, probably not ever going to go up to the pipe major and be like, should I align my quarter notes to the, when your heel hits the ground or when your toe hits the ground? Cause it's really, I would never really do that because I think that there's more to it. So I think of the, I think of the foot as just part of the pipe major conducting the group. But then the other thing that I use is I watch the pipe majors fingers mm. or I watch another piper's fingers for further cues. Now, I'm not explicitly watching the fingers and I'm not explicitly watching the foot. I'm like just soaking it all in. By the way, I'm also using my ears as well, obviously. When we play with somebody else, it's our ears that give the final say, isn't it? Yeah, so mm. we want to use a combination of all available cues, visual and auditory, which may or may not include the foot. Like one, one of the things that's cool, it's like a Stuart Little flex. I think. Mm-hmm. And some other pipe majors have done it, of course, as well. But like the Stuart Little Flex is the band's going really well. Everyone standing around him is a great musician. And so he just stands still for a while. I've seen this. Yeah. He's not given any cues. <laughs> and that's yeah. cool. That's cool. And I can still take cues from him even when he's standing still, hopefully, conceptually. If it's not raining too hard, I can still see his fingers. And I also know that the pipe major, where he, in, at least in Inverary, I think, he's getting his... He's getting his cue of where the beat should be, I think, largely from the drum corps. I think in any good band, you have that, that relationship between the rhythm section and the pipe corps that's creating good ensemble. So you always have those cues available to you as well. We're way off on a tangent here, Jim, but just to say that it definitely pays to be specific. And uh, yeah, every band's going to be different. Every pipe major is going to tap their foot differently. But it's really, it's all about if you're going to play in a good band everybody will have a really clear idea of exactly where the beat is and where to expect Mm -hmm. it to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. And don't sweat the tangent, Andrew. This is exactly the kind of stuff I was hoping to extract from you as we discuss mm-hmm. this. This is perfect. This is perfect. Yeah. Yep. It so, can be as simple as it can be as simple as, oh, quarter notes go on the beat. That's not a terrible place to start. However, before long you find that you need more specifics. And and you well, can find them. I think you can find the specifics. Absolutely. As is being demonstrated even now. We can drill in to get more and more specific. Yeah. We're just getting started. So now here we have the same four quarter notes, but we've got some embellishments built in here too. Yes. If we can just get to where our markup is here. So now if I'm looking at the same four quarter notes now, and we've got some embellishments, embellishments built in, do my beats still fall exactly in the same spots on those quarter notes? Or is there some amount of nuance to be had with these doublings and grace notes? Yeah. Do you have the ability to give me two of the same notes in a row separated by one grace note? uh, You bet. Here we have a doubling between the two E's. There we have a grip between two E's. Here we have a tap between two E's. That'll work. That'll work. So here, and I guess we should be considerate of the listening audience. So we now have another set of four quarter notes. And in the middle, we've got two E's separated by an A tap. Yeah, so like an A, a low A grace note strike sort of thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sometimes known as a tap. So before we go on to other examples, just let's just zero in on these two notes separated by a grace note because I think it's really important to just take a grace note for what it is. And in its root form, in its most basic form, this is what a grace note is. It's a method for separating two of the same note. That's like the root reason for a grace note, which is on the bagpipes. And we already talked about how you were a continuous instrument. We cannot stop the sound, at least without great pains. We cannot stop the sound easily. Like on a clarinet or even on a practice chanter, we could stop the sound. We can easily separate the sound with our tongue on most woodwind instruments, but we can't do that on the pipes. And what's really interesting, if you give like a five-year-old a practice chanter, it doesn't take long at all for them to start to separate notes with primitive grace notes. Like this is something that would have happened really early on in the conception of this tube style instrument thing. You can think of like thousands of years ago or something like that. Right? So we need a method to separate the two notes and that's what the grace note is. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you separate it? Like when you go back to tonguing on a trumpet or something, how long is the tongue? What is the duration of that thing? And, and what I've come to is that the, this articulation, this grace note between the two notes is very similar to the beat in the sense that what we want is an infinitely small sound. We, we, mm-hmm. What a grace note is, it's, it's an articulation of an infinitely small time value. And that's the thing that we're looking at. So when we see this E separated by one grace note going to the other E, that grace note is an infinitely small articulative sound. Now it goes down to low A, but the melody isn't really that important to me. Like the texture of it is nice. It'll have that nice low blippy deep quality to it probably because as opposed to a high G grace note, which would have that sort of chirpy quality. So the grace notes can have different sort of texture and quality, but we're not super concerned with the pitch of the grace notes generally speak. This is of course, generally speaking, but we are very concerned that it's as infinitely small as audibly possible. That's the key thing about a grace note that we want. 
something that generally needs to be explained to any musician coming to bagpipes from any other kind of music is that these aren't 32nd or 64th notes, depending on how they're being notated. These are, like you say, articulations. So they're yeah. of non-mathematical value when you're adding up how much time is going where. In theory, well, they're of course, they end up taking space, right? Yeah, but, they're mathematical, yeah. but they're not proportional, right? Mm -hmm. So they are mathematical in the sense that if they're not as small as physically possible while still being able to hear them, then they're incorrect. And just remember, I'm talking about rules. All of these rules can be broken. Mm -hmm. Don't forget. Like, what's... What makes music cool? The music I really like are where they break some of these rules in really interesting mm -hmm. ways. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you can never play a grace note of a greater duration. I'm just saying the basic rule here is infinitely small. Let me, sh let me demonstrate what I mean here. Here's a little bit of great tune played with very small, infinitely small grace notes. By the way, I'm using this chanter because... My other one's packed. I'm going to Scotland today, so it's already packed. Nice. So in there, I'm just trying to play very small grace notes. Now, listen to the impact on that phrase when my grace notes are no longer as small as I can possibly make them. Can you hear the difference? For sure, yeah. For sure you can hear the difference, right? So yeah. here's what I want again, very small and crisp. Now, are those grace notes actually infinitely small? The answer, of course not. But mm -hmm. that's the way I think about it. That's the most useful way to think about it. What the real, the true duration of those grace notes are, they're so small that they don't take any perceived time from the melody at all. That's the role of a grace note, which by the way, going back to what we were saying earlier, grace note is a poorly named thing because grace notes in the greater world of Western music are not that at all. They have a definitive length to them and they tend to just ornament the melody in really interesting ways. But there, there may be more like the melody note components of embellishments, but I'm sure we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And of course the problem with the way that you played that poorly when you played it when you played that phrase poorly was that those grace notes were taking away from the yes. duration of the melody notes and so it either squishes the measure out to be too long or it makes it so that the expression of those melody notes one to another within the measure aren't happening right exactly right and that's the key thing right the grace note is only worth doing uh, if it helps us bring out the rhythm of the melody. So mm. let's go back to the original question. So here we are, we have these two E's separated by a grace note. Now, whenever a grace note precedes a note, we have that infinitely small grace note. That mm -hmm. should perfectly coincide. When you have that, the grace note should perfectly coincide. The infinitely small grace note, perfectly at the same time as that infinitely small beat where the note should go. Or if that's not on a beat, if it's somewhere in between, it should go on that infinitely small subsection of the groove where that grace note is intended to align with, right? So once you have a grace note preceding a note, that is the thing that will perfectly align with the beat. And of course, the melody note follows infinitely soon thereafter. That's how I can, think can about I, it. Can I push you to get probably too specific here just for a sec yes. just because it'll help yes. set up the, the future discussion what we're going to talk about coming up so we're zooming way in on this grace note right here 
I'm going to put a line right at the front end of the grace note mm-hmm. and a line right at the back end of the grace note yep. and a line right in the middle of the grace note. Yep. If I could get the slow-mo guys in here with their high-speed cameras, where is that tick from the, t- from the metronome happening? Front end, middle, or back end of the grace note? Yep. And it's, if you really want to go this deep, the answer to that question is, it depends on the type of grace note. Nice, nice. This is the kind of <laughs> okay. nuance I so, want. Like, <laughs> so this strike grace note. So a uh-huh. strike, and again, you could call it whatever you want, but a strike is a grace note that strikes down below the current note that you're on and then yeah. returns to the note and then returns to that note. For me, a strike, you would put the line at the front end. The strike would mm. initiate at exactly the same infinitely small moment as the beat. However, when you have a standard grace note where you're mm-hmm. flicking your finger from above the note, right? A G grace note on E or something like that. Right. That's different. Technically, under a quantum microscope, a, a grace note from above the note is finishing at the infinitely small moment that is the beat. So that then you hit the following melody note on that beat. Exactly correct, sir. However, mm. don't misunderstand me, people. See how I put emphasis on those words. Don't <laughs> misunderstand me. That grace note is so small that there will be absolutely no audible difference to anyone listening as to exactly when that starts or finishes. Because remember, conceptually, infinitely small no perceptible value. So just the fact that the grace note closes technically on a quantum scale that the grace note is ever so slightly before the beat, no human mind should be able to detect that. If you can detect that, you've played the grace note wrong. If we're playing it small enough, it won't be detectable is the whole idea. Otherwise known as, if 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 you're playing, otherwise known as, rephrased on your behalf, if the grace note is played correctly, Yeah, if if the grace notes played correctly, you won't be able to tell one way or the other. No, though, as long as we're like Ant-Man level zoomed in here anyway, is there room for like something like personal flavor in playing? Is there room for some pipers to play the back end where you would have played the front end of the grace note? A hundred percent. Yep. It's good to know. So if we ever did get into a discussion about this with our pipe major, we ought to say, whatever you say, pipe major, that's what I'll do while I'm with the band. Yeah. But all grace notes should be infinitely small when you play in a, unless otherwise stated, the default will be infinitely small. And if the pipe major is like, hey guys, I want you to play big open grace notes here in this 2-4 march for our MSR, you, you should start to, you should begin to feel a little bit of apprehension. Now, different pipers will play grace notes in different ways, right? But, and there's just going to yeah. be trade-offs. So you could play big, rich grace notes. And by big, I still mean extraordinarily small. But like a sure. little bit bigger, a little bit more depth. But mm-hmm. there's going to be trade-offs, right? That's going to limit how fast you can play the bigger your grace notes go, right? Yeah. And it's going, to, it's going to interrupt from the melody a little bit. So this one... This measure here, we open with a G grace note going to A, low A. So you can assume we're coming from an E. So like you were just mentioning with G grace note, I'm just going to go ahead and say then that means we're probably going to be going for beat falls, back end of the G grace note, 
slash no, front end of no, the lower no. note. So now that you've gotten your nerdy crap out of the way, the grace note is what <laughs> perfectly coincides with the beat, right? So does that mean we want if to see it the, visually represented more like right in the middle of If you had your this? metronome, here's another way of thinking about it. If you had a metronome turned up loud enough, you would not hear the grace note at all. Oh, okay, it would disappear right into the tick. Correct. Like That's that. another useful way of thinking about it. And it's another really useful way of practicing the rhythmic accuracy of your grace notes is turn on that metronome nice and loud mm. in your ear. And the sound of that grace note should not be heard. That is a very useful piece of info there. I like that yeah. a lot. Yeah, so then you could do it the other way too. You could do it the other way too, which is turn on the metronome really soft. And if you can hear the metronome at all, instead of just the sound of the grace note, then that would be the same thing. But I prefer the metronome loud. Uh, it does seem like default. with Highland bagpipes, especially in the family of bagpiping, the G grace note is so useful. Like how many of us have not got into this groove where especially hammering on that G grace note, you get this real, it almost is a metronome for sections of a tune, depending on how people graced that, that tune, but that exactly. seems to happen. Yes, sir. So they're on the right train of thought there, in my opinion. Yeah. Here we have a C doubling on a C. Mm -hmm. Where does yes. the beat fall in here? Is it on the melody line or is it in the middle of the doubling? Where does that happen? Good question. So the answer is it's totally up to you. Nice. The answer is that you could put the beat anywhere you want. Actually, that's only true. So the real interpretation of that, something pipers often get wrong. So the C doubling there, you might be tempted to say, oh, it's a G grace note followed by a C grace note followed by a D grace note. And then we end up on C, right? We are tempted to say that. I've heard you are tempted to say that, but that would be totally false and incorrect. And it's very important. Like one key distinction, all right, is that it's impossible to play a grace note without a subsequent melody note. Very, yeah, I thought you were just going to leave it at that. It's impossible to play a I grace know. note. <laughs> what? That's what I was going for. Yeah. What? Uh, no, it's impossible to play a grace note without a subsequent melody note. Mm. So we can't have three grace notes in a row followed by a C. That's just not a thing. Mm. So mm. in the case of the doubling, we've got three, apparently three grace notes in a row. That's not possible. So mm. you have to be careful when you have an embellishment to be clear on this. So what we really have is a G grace note to C and that C is not a grace note. It's actually a very small melody note. This, we might call it so much. Yeah. We might call it a, as short as musically possible melody note is that mm -hmm. C. So the C doubling is a melody note. So the real question is which of the two melody notes in that C doubling which mm -hmm. is starting, it's all starting to come together for us now. Oh, a mm -hmm. doubling. Oh, a doubling means two sounds. Oh, very interesting. You can see the etymology of the word doubling there. Yeah, so the real question is, which of those two notes do we want to happen on the beat? Mm -hmm. And whichever one you pick will determine how you're going to play the movement. So you can play that movement any way you want. Very important. Even though the way, even though the rule says that the C doubling will initiate on the beat with that G grace note. You don't have to play it that way. You can play it any way you want. Mm -hmm. If you're in a band, you do have to play it that way because if yes. some people are playing it one way and other people are playing it another way, it would be a hot mess. If you're playing solo competitions, you also have to play it initiating on the beat because the judge isn't going to like it if you don't. But let's not forget, you can play embellishments any way you want. You can, if you're in control, you can even purposefully play it badly. I do that all the time when I'm teaching, right? Yeah. Uh, I play, oh, what am I doing wrong here? And then, and then I purposely play it wrong. So anyway, 
with all that esoteric nonsense out of the way, what we'll do as pipers, the general rule is that on a doubling, the first step of the embellishment will align perfectly with the beat. So in this case, it would be another case of the G grace note to C. If the metronome mm -hmm. was turned up loud enough, the G grace note to C would be completely eclipsed. This is, I think this is so cool because like really your asides about the etymology of the word doubling in this case, and also like how you can imagine how this would, grace notes would naturally begin to occur for anybody playing a tubular instrument. instrument. If we can in our imaginations imagine this C right here melding with this C right here, essentially what we have to start with, it feels very much like a, an evolutionary line. It is. Where it's not at all different from the G grace note to A that we just barely saw. It's just another G grace note to C. And then we decided to do a little yeah. D sound after. Yeah, you could look at a sport like snowboarding, relatively new sport, right? Mm. And what happens every year? Every year they just throw in another rotation or another little yep, fakey grab <laughs> thing, right? Mm. But I don't know. I don't, obviously don't snowboard. I'm very Such a top great heavy. snowboarder. That was great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but you can see like a relatively new sport that's ornamental in nature, right? What do you do? You continue to push the boundaries uh, of the mm. ornamentation, right? And so these doublings that we see all the time in tunes, that's one like evolution from the basic tools that we have, right? It's one step removed. It's, oh, I have a grace note to these melody notes. That's cool. But bro, check this out. I'm going to throw a double. Mm. Ooh. And then he's, yep. oh, I hate that. I hate that. Oh, mm -hmm. you think that's cool, bro? No, I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm just adversarial mm. by nature, but I'm making up fake history here. But then the other guys, I can do doublings. Plus, check out this D throw or check out this little pinky thing I'm doing. That gives me three sounds. What? Yeah. And then oh, it's, and I'll the see your little like, pinky. I'll see your little pinky sound, and I'll add a, a grace note to the beginning of the pinky sound. I'll yep. see your D throw, and I'll make it a heavy D throw. Yeah, and then and then eventually you play that out long enough, and then you find guys who are like, I don't need any of that ornamentation. Check out my minimalist style. Uh, That's where yeah. minimalism comes from. It's like they're tired of all the ornamentation, and then they're like, tired. Remember, they're tired of shredding the gnar, and they want to go back to just sliding some powder. Exactly, man. Uh, exactly. And then Andrew Wright comes to mind. He used to just do recitals at the piping schools where he would just play 4-4 four, four marches with like absolute few grace notes and embellishments as he possibly could. And it was mm. so cool. People thought it was weird. I thought it was awesome. It was like, oh, this guy's, he, he, when you go minimal, now you're listening to the sound of the pipes and like you're listening to just yeah. the big notes and like all the value because it's easy to get caught up in all the embellishment flat and all the special effects, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? And then like you have these movies with so much special effects, but not actually that much substance. And then you have Spielberg will be like, you know what? I'm shooting this one on like old fashioned film just to get back to the basics. But I digress. But yes, it is a natural evolution, right? And uh, you can go quite far. You can evolve things quite far. Peabrock is actually a cool thing in that respect you all, you get to experience the evolution of yes. increased ornamentation all packaged in one piece it's neat but anyway no that's that is such a good point andrew i had an interesting experience the other day where my younger sister who grew up hearing being bagpipe adjacent because we lived in the same house and i was playing bagpipes but never having played pipes herself she brought up to me that she had heard a peabrook for the first time and she didn't know that it was a peabrook but she mentioned I really liked the way that started because I feel like 
bagpipe music is so much little blippity boopity this and blippity boopity that. And finally, I could just hear the instrument, and I thought it sounded beautiful. Yeah. And, I was like, and for yes. me, as a bagpiper who's like trying to get into Peabrook, right? I'm like, what? Mind blown. I was like, I thought the blippity bloopities were the most important thing. And to have and a non-bagpiper appreciate the like minimalist uh, minimalism of that of the ground, especially of a Peabrook, was very interesting to me. Yeah. If you're playing, if the average person listening to you is just distracted by your blippity bloopities, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter what grade level you're in, bro. You're not a good piper. <laughs> I'm just telling you right now. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. people have the bloopities. When the average person on the street passes by and Stuart Little is playing Cameronian rant and some grade one guy is playing Cameronian rant, you're hearing bloopities from one guy and not the other guy or gal. It doesn't really matter, right? It's like the mm. blippity bloopities. If your embellishments and your grace notes aren't enhancing the quality of the music, then you should not be playing them. Isn't that interesting? Embellishing what? Exactly. If they're intended to embellish the melody line, but they've taken over and there's no melody left, they're no longer embellishments. They're, no lo- they're distractions. And so you can play an embellishment correctly in a way that you won't be penalized on your score sheet but it can still be musically terrible. It's to a, that it's point. A, it's, oh, I can't fault. I can't fault that D throw. Mm. Oh, except for, by the way, you totally can fault it because it's not musical. It's making the music worse, not better. So there's room to be technically correct while also not musically pleasant. It's not actually technically correct if it's not musically pleasant. However, that escapes <laughs> many pipers, even judges. Uh, but we should, and perhaps even my, I'm sure even myself, right? It's like you, you've been, I've been in the bagpipe world for so long. I'm probably ignorant to many of the things that we do that make no damn sense to normal musicians. Yeah. Four minutes of tuning for a three, (laughs) for a three minute MSR. Yeah. Yeah. You're being generous there. I think it's more often 12 minutes of tuning for a three minute MSR, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We should stop. We got to stop here or else I'm going to get myself in trouble. So stopping there. No, I mean, um, we can keep the topic going, but we should stop. Stopping that line of thinking. Pause. I'm just. So to the same point, though, here next in our little example, we do have a quarter note simply moving to another melody note. And there we're just going to put the beat right at the beginning of that quarter. note. Yeah, that's actually an interesting note change, I think. And I'm not sure if you did it on purpose, but that's a really interesting note change because it's like the simplest possible type of motion we can have on the scale. We're going from C to D. So that's just one finger that has to lift, right? And the lifting of that one finger should, that moment, that exact infinitely small moment where you're no longer covering the hole and now you're uncut, now it's uncovered, that infinitely small moment should perfectly coincide. If you were playing with a metronome, it should perfectly coincide with the metronome. If you're tapping your foot, it should perfectly coincide with the moment that the foot strikes the ground. If you're now, playing with a snare drummer, should perfectly coincide with the moment they strike the snare drum with that clap from the snare drum yep so now i'm going to try something just slightly different to explain the same thing with what we have next which is an e doubling tell tell me if this makes if this is good i'm going to take this e right here and i'm going to squish it together with the e that's in the middle of the doubling so just imagine this is one big giant e quarter Mm -hmm. note yes this is really what we have Yes. A G grace note to E. And so keeping that in mind, that's really what we have. That makes it really easy to then say, oh, so that means that the beat, right, is right here. Because this is where the melody yeah. starts Correct. for that note. 
Yes. And at, least, just the rule. Uh, at least by default, based on bagpipe rules, yes. Right. Uh, yeah, again, there's room to break these rules. This is just a place to start, yeah. Yeah, please do. If you're actually in control and you're making such a decision to make the music sound more interesting, yeah, please do horse around with that. That sounds, that sounds like yeah, it's something cool I want to hear. Yeah, you got to mess around and find out. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a I, here's flat from Flada. Here's flat from Flada again, with all of the embellishments, of reverse timing. I don't know. It's really hard because it's all backwards. But like, yeah, that's gotta be not? hard. That's hard. Yeah, I'm having a hard time wrapping my hand around how I would get my fingers to do, to even do that. My hat's off to yeah. you. Was, but you you would you'd have to sing it differently. Something like that. But you can see it totally. You could see it totally transforms the yeah. shape of the music. I mean, that immediately to me suddenly felt like a Porsche de Buell, like walking song. Yeah. And it's interesting that it, cha it changes the feel, the groove, the rhythm of it. And it immediately evokes other styles of music. I'm not like, yeah. I'm not quite sure what it would be like some sort of like, it, I had, I felt Arabic flavors as I was singing that mm. for some reason, but then, yeah. but, and that's not to be weird and bizarre or anything like that statement wasn't just to be some sort of weirdo, but it's to say that there are these characteristics of various types of music that you're not necessarily aware of, but it's things that are woven into the tapestry of the music. And so for us, mm -hmm. these doublings, that, uh, that sort of taka or that sort of like accent followed by that. So a super short note accented perfectly on the beat, followed by that sort of echoing thing. That's very common. That's like a bagpipe music thing. Like, I can't really think of any other music that does that so explicitly. I played a lot of percussion and percussions, percussion players like, like snare drummers will play flams and flams are really interesting mm. because there's a grace note there, but that grace note typically ever so slightly precedes the yeah. beat. Right. So like a flam is not the same, but it's, but a flam is what makes snare, cer certain types of snare drumming, like really iconic and interesting and flavorful. So, yeah. These things become like yeah. defining characteristics of the idiom, the instrument, et cetera. Yes. Sad. Mm. Sad. Yeah. Ah, I do what I can. That's why I pay you um, the big bucks. That's it. Let's hit another, let's hit another slide real quick here. Yeah. What do we got for like low G oriented embellishments? Let's, let's click through. Tell me boring, if, oh, whoops. boring, boring. Oh yeah. One of these, the one with the D throw and the grip. Let's just talk Was about that, the throw and grip. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. So let's go through these ones. One. So the first one, we have the low G strike on low A. That's the same as any other grace note, I think. And if it's ever so slightly different there, like that's a unique one where we're going from a note. I don't know. So that one might precede the beat ever so slightly which is fine, or maybe not. It probably all depends. And then a lot of pipers will play that grace note a little bit on the fat side. Yes, uh, for it's, sure. It's almost more like that particular one is almost, can be sometimes more of a traditional Western music style grace note where it's yeah. just like we're visiting the low G ever so briefly, but, or it can be treated exactly the same as other grace notes for starters to keep things simple. After that, we have a D grace note to C. It should be no surprise mm -hmm. there, right? If we, were, if we had that metronome on really loud, the D grace note would be completely consumed by the clicking sound. That's where that Disappear should go, right and then we'll switch it. to the C. Yep. Now, the low G embellishments get a little bit interesting. So we already talked about how you can't have three grace notes in a row. 
There need mm-hmm. to be melody notes in there somewhere. Now you could deduce what those would be. For example, here we're going from C into this D throw. So mm-hmm. how do you play? How do you play a low G grace note in between C and D? So it's not a thing. As, as fast it's not really possible. a thing. As, <laughs> I was going to say as infinitesimally small as possible. Yeah, that's yeah. not really what <laughs> it is. Rough. That low G is actually a small melody note. So the D throw begins with a small melody note, low G. Then Mm. you can see, now we're going to have a D grace note onto a small melody note, C. And then we're going to go up to D. And let's skip the heavy versus light debate for this episode, because that'll make it a 14-hour episode. Actually, not really. It doesn't take me long to prove why the light D throw is better. But we'll save that. So we'll have a D grace note to C, and then we'll go we'll finish on the note D and that sort of represents the embellishment. Now that's actually three steps, low G D grace note to C finish on D that's so that would, what I just described would be a three step movement. And so once you get into more than two steps, the where you play it relative to the beat becomes a lot more flexible. There'll be, you'll hear pipers who will typically begin the D throw on the beat. And then you'll hear quite a lot of pipers who put the beat on the D grace note to the C and it, it all just depends. If you play in a band, you've got to have a plan. So everyone's doing things in unison. But then otherwise, if, for individual pipers, I would encourage you to play the type of D throw that makes the most musical sense mm. to you. So just rather to clarify. Than, rather than having a dogmatic place that it has to go. Yeah, because it might be different from one tune to the other or depending on your tempo or how you want to play that day. But to clarify, if you're if we're coming at this as if this low G is our first little tiny melody note, does that mean that is where the beat falls, or does that the mean the beat would that's... fall exactly right? So the beat would fall at the exact moment that the whole the low G holes are covered from whatever the previous note was. That's where the beat would go. Mm-hmm. So we're here. We're coming from C. So the exact moment that the B and C fingers close should be. The, the exact moment that the metronome clicks or that the foot taps. So to help visualize, this is a melody note. This is a big melody note right here. Yeah, exactly right. And this guy right here is a little grace note. Mm-hmm. Is that what we're saying? Yes, that's what and we're saying. And this is also a melody note, but it's not, if we're only marking out the beats no, for no. every... Yeah, every... definitely a small melody note. So the melody of a D throw is... The Simpsons. There you go. Like it, right? Yeah. And then yep. that little C leads us into the D, and it's a very satisfying movement when played well. Yeah. So um, this, now, not, this so, does not make mathematical sense, but just to help us visualize that, it's G, D, or G, C, D. There's a little grace note between the G and C. Correct. Yep. And then so what we just described, that would be the low G beginning on the beat style of the D throw. And then yes. alternatively, you could put the beat on the D grace note to the C, which in some cases makes sense. I would argue in some cases it doesn't make sense because once the D grace note is on the C, now you need to find a place for that low G, which would usually be, so it's going to take time away from the previous melody note. And it can make the actual downbeat a lot more blurry and nonspecific. Yeah, you, gotta be, you have to be smart about how you approach that. Let's look at, yeah, can we this- look at the grip? Oh, for sure, next. Yeah. yeah. And then, so the grip is similar to the D throw in the sense that first low G is a melody note. Mm-hmm. And then we split that low G in two pieces with that D grace note, mm-hmm. right? 
and then, then we finish on basically any note we want. In this case, it's an E, right? So that's, a, again, a three-step movement. Low G, another low G, landing note, right? Now, play that like this, da-ka-da, 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 uh, a.k.a. the two low Gs preceding the beat, which would go on the final melody note. That's one yeah. way you can play a grip. And then the other way you could play a grip is ta-ka-dum, ta-ka-dum, right? Where the first low G is what coincides with the beat and the rest fall after. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we find that different situations merit different grips insofar mm -hmm. as timing is concerned. The way you play them technically is the same, but how you align them with the beat is negotiable. Just And then just for full measure... I've, I would never personally, and I've never really heard a grip where the middle step goes on the beat. Right? This, yeah. The D grace note there. Yeah. yeah. Really I understand that. Yeah. The book by Jim McGilvery called Rhythmic Fingerwork goes into yeah. the specifics on all of these things in really excellent depth, and I would highly recommend it. And I think I would probably be remiss if I didn't credit rhythmic fingerwork for being the foundation of most of how I think about all this stuff. Yeah. And I feel like it's plenty important to, ha to hammer home yet again that these are things that if your pipe major says do it this one way, that's what you do when you're part of a group. And No, you, can... you don't have to. You could organize a mutiny. You could. <laughs> and maybe you um, should. And I remember... <laughs> Who am I to say no? <laughs> yeah. I remember as a pipe major having to change what I did because everyone else was doing it wrong. Yeah. Because <laughs> everyone right. else was doing it wrong. I appreciate yeah. you keep that in there. So... <laughs> No, but what, I think what you mean to say, which is true, is if you're in an, a band, a pipe core, in order for that pipe core to play unison, everyone has to be in agreement on yeah. exactly how they're going to approach some of these specific things and some of these choices. Yeah. Let's leave it there, Jim. I'm good. I think we covered a lot there. It's fun. It's a good one. Yeah. I got to cool. leave a little bit left inside of a Dojo U membership. I can't just... I can't give it tell all you away. Everything. Yeah, I can't tell you everything. It's all. How do you do the thumb grace note? So, if you want to know how to do the thumb today. grace note, yeah. join join Piper's Dojo. And if you want to exactly. get even more deep and nerdy into this this whole world, buy Jim McGillivray's book, Rhythmic Fieldwork. Yeah, Work. and Gibson Practice Chanter. Oh yeah, I'm so that's today. The, yeah, my good friend Eric is, Bean. My good friend Eric Bean now owns Gibson Bagpipes, which is really cool. So if you're out there, listeners, oh. shoot him an email, see what he's or go to his website and see what he's got going on. And yeah. tell him Andrew sent you. <laughs> yeah. Tell him Andrew. Yeah. Yep, you got that it. might not get you any kind of special deal, but it'll make him realize how important Andrew Douglas is to his business model. Yep. He just, and then it's definitely, I think on YouTube, we'll have to say we, this has paid product placement or something. No, it's not really paid, but he sent me some of the chanters and some of the changes that they mm. made and they're pretty good. Not too yeah. bad. Andrew, this maybe bleeds into a new topic. Maybe we could do this topic some other day, but just while I'm thinking about it, that the fact that it's a smaller Gibson chanter, what it brought to mind is, you know, the bagpipe doctor, Matthew Welch, right? He's, that's his name, right? The Kale... He did the complete new complete theory. Yeah. yeah. Doing an, I was just doing an interview with him last night for our new bagpipe oh. tuning course. There you go. He has advocated in the past the use of smaller practice chanters with non-countersunk holes for increased fingerwork accuracy. And personally, hmm. I don't entirely understand why, but I trust this guy. So if he says so. I will say the Gibson practice chanters that I have in front of me are countersunk. 
holes. Yeah, that is a topic for another day. I yeah, think no sweat. That, yeah, I think that countersunk holes, they make sense to me. So if there's a strong argument for not using countersunk holes, we should have that person on. And Yeah. But probably not for too long because <laughs> that doesn't seem like an exciting topic really beyond <laughs> a few minutes. So we'll have, we should have well, Matt, we should have, we should have Matt on yeah. and to talk about that for five minutes and then more interesting things thereafter. Other things too. Yeah. I've nearly yeah. finished his, that book that he put out recently. So maybe that would be a good time to have him on. Another phenomenal book that people who are interested in knowing the things on knowing the knowledge should definitely grab his book for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's been super cool. Now, is that the end of the episode? Did we go? Yeah, did we go? Yeah. Beautiful.